And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome back. I'm Tom Laurie. Our guest mentor this week is Jeff Schwartz the founding partner of Deloitte Consulting's U.S. Future of Work Practice and the global editor of the influential Global Human Capital Trends Report. Jeff is the author of the recently released Work Disrupted, Opportunity, Resilience, and Growth in the Accelerated Future of Work. Our topic today will be about how COVID and technology are accelerating changes in future employment models and how you can build on your skills and experience to navigate the emerging workplace. Welcome, Jeff. It's an honor to have you with us today. And I want to get started by having you tell us a little bit about what is the future of work practice at Deloitte and why is it important to us? Great, Tom. It's terrific to be with you today. So the future of work practice is a practice that we put in place about uh, four or five years ago, 2016, actually, when we, we recognized that some things that we'd been working on with clients and studying uh, were really a new field. And, and for us, the future of work is about three interrelated questions. Uh, what's happening to work with people and technology? What's happening to workforces? And what's happening to workplaces? And what we recognized was that in order to both research this and serve our clients, we needed very much a multidisciplinary approach to do it. Because these issues, and we've all seen them in the last year right in front of us, are issues that require what what we talk about as a symphonic C-suite response. Um, We need teams of leaders to go after them. So the future of work practice is a practice that cuts across all of Deloitte Consulting, where the I think today the largest consulting firm in the U.S. and globally. And it's our charge to bring both focused thinking, but also all the different capabilities of the firm to work with clients on these questions. So it's it's obviously been a very interesting place to be um, and a field that has evolved amazingly in the last few years and in remarkable ways in the last year. And for our listeners, what is the Global Human Capital Trends Report and who is its audience? So the Global Human Capital Trends Report is a report that we started in 2011. Um, 2011, if if we all remember, we were all looking over our shoulder at the great financial crisis and the great recession. And uh, we've been looking at trends in human capital management, organizational issues, HR issues, uh, obviously culture um, issues uh, at the same time. We do a global survey that we've done for the last 10 years. It's one of the probably the largest longitudinal surveys on human capital issues. It's targeted both at HR leaders, as you would expect. But in the last couple of years, we've had more, I'll say, non-HR business leaders, CEOs, CFOs, CIOs, uh, business unit leaders, uh, very actively participating in the survey. I think in the last year, um, somewhere between 55 and 60% of the respondents of the survey were not in the HR suite. So in the report, we, we really try to look not at what are the issues right in front of us in the next six months, but what are the trends, where are things going, and what are the future directions? And uh, we've been able to raise some both interesting and provocative themes over the last few years. And the last couple of years, we've been really looking at what we call the social enterprise, how the human capital agenda is focused both on HR issues and business issues and social issues all at the same time. And what do you think is the most provocative trend that you uh, have identified, uh, let's say pre-COVID? Well, the mo- it's interesting. I-, I think we've seen a couple of things that are are uh, particularly uh, provocative. Um, I think the Probably the the two biggest one, one I've already mentioned, 
In 2017, uh, we introduced the idea of sort of reframing the social enterprise. Now, this is a couple of years before the business roundtable. This is a little bit before Larry Fink at um, BlackRock um, issued his letter um, looking at the role of purpose um, for organizations. And we recognize that there was a shift going on and that the need for business and HR leaders to focus both on market and business and economic value, which we're all very familiar with and very focused on, but to integrate that with social concerns um, and community concerns was a, was a major trend. Today, it's not as provocative as it was four years ago, Tom, I'll put it that way. And, and I think the other provocative idea that we have is that, and this has really become the theme of the book that we'll be talking about today, is that if the world is changing as dramatically as it is, then HR and people management also needs to change in some dramatic ways. And we've been trying to outline what some of those changes are. Do you think that HR has a place at the uh, table with executives uh, at the top of a corporation? I, I believe they should, but do they really have one today? Well, I think there's, in my mind and in our mind at Deloitte, there's no question that the head of HR, whether she's called the chief human resource officer or the chief uh, people officer or the chief people and purpose officer, these are some of the titles that we're, we're hearing today, has an amazingly important role working both with the CEO and the C-suite, but also working with the board directly as well. And one way we've been thinking about this, Tom, is in some ways in the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, 2010, the CFO was really front and center, helping us all navigate through that. In the crises that we've been facing in the last year, the health crisis, the economic crisis, the social crisis, the CHRO has really been in many ways one of the pivotal central people working with the CEO on the board to help navigate these critical people questions. So I don't think there's any question, and I think it's been accelerated by what we've seen in the last year. Well, I'm going to touch on that. Just one more question when I come back after the break, and we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Deloitte Consulting's future of work expert, Jeff Schwartz. And we're discussing how to navigate the emerging post-COVID workplace. The Mentors is now in its fifth year. Past guests have included some of the world's top business people, including Ram Sharan, the founder of uh, J&J's Human Performance Lab, Jim Lawyer, and many more. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, or any podcast platform to listen to past shows. This is Tom Laurie, and you're listening to The Mentors Radio Show. Hi, I'm the executive producer of The Mentors Radio Show. Usually I'm behind the scenes, but I want to tell you about something special. If you're an entrepreneur like me, you need steady energy and focus. Here's my secret. I rely on science-backed, high-quality, bulletproof collagen protein and other bulletproof products. My sister told me about it. At feelgreat.vip, you can learn the health journey of Bulletproof founder Dave Asprey. Find out what sets these products apart from the rest. Nothing can replace the advice of your medical doctor, but good nutrition can absolutely enhance your mood, energy, and focus like it did for me. The demands of business, not to mention important time with family and friends, make steady energy so important. With more than 1 million fans, 1 million fans, I'm not alone in recommending Bulletproof. Go to feelgreat.vip. That's VIP, like very special person. Feelgreat.vip to learn more. Ugh, Bob, I'm so frustrated. Sorry to hear that, Sarah. What's going on? I feel like I'm spinning. I I make goals to make money, work less, spend more quality time with family. But the truth is, I never actually achieve these goals. Year after year, I try to do things differently, but ultimately nothing changes. What's the point? Yeah, I did the same thing until I saw a friend completely change her life in less than a year. I was shocked. She sounded just like you a year ago, but not anymore. Wow, what'd she do? She she decided to work with a Brian Tracy certified coach named Christoph Nauer. Certified by Brian Tracy? He must be good. Even better. He guarantees results. He listens. It's very customized to you. Wow, that gives me hope. As a listener of The Mentors Radio, you get a free one-on-one -on -one Take My Time Back session. Don't wait. Go to balance6.biz. That's balance, the number six, dot B-I-Z to book your free assessment. Balance6.biz. 
And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with Deloitte's Jeff Schwartz, and we're talking about adapting to the emerging 21st century post-COVID workplace. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast and on any device, anytime. Subscribe at TheMentorsRadio.com. So we were talking about HR and their critical role in in business. And it's been my experience that this is an evolving role. And I sat with my good friend, Ram Sharan, a few years ago, talking about the role of HR. And he challenged HR people to do a better job where they can sit at the, uh, at the executive table because they play two, uh, two sides of the coin. They represent the employees to the executive team, and they represent the company to the employees in many ways in terms of their interface. And in some ways, they've usurped some of the responsibility from line managers. So has... I'm just curious, it's this, you brought it, since you brought it up, has there been a, a marked change in the development and training of HR people so they can, uh, I, you've said they've risen to the occasion in the last year. I suspect that isn't a true across the board, but is the training improving? Is uh, MBA programs? I don't know. Uh, a lot of people don't even get an MBA in HR. They end up in HR. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I mean, that's a whole topic in itself on how HR functions. Well, it's a great question. And I think the challenge that we all have today, whether we're leading in from the HR um, chair or we're leading from the technology or digital chair or the marketing chair, I think every member of the C-suite is, is being challenged to think about whether she or he is focusing on the challenges of the last century or the last decade or the challenges of th- this century, the 21st century, and the 2020s. And that I think that is certainly true in HR. I actually think, Tom, it's true across the entire C-suite. Um, uh, you know, I actually teach at a couple of business schools uh, right now. And I think it's fair to say that many business schools and many management development programs are, are doing a very serious rethink about whether or not they're focusing enough on the emerging topics and the emerging ways of thinking that are critical for HR and business leaders. And we can go into that um, uh, if you like. You know, Ram Charan a couple of years ago challenged us in HR with the question, do we need HR anymore? Does HR need to exist uh, as a a separate discipline? And uh, I think it's a really timely question because I think what we've seen in, in 2020 and 2021 and 2022 are two sides of that question. One, it's no longer just the employees. It's a much broader view of the workforce. Many people that work for our organization are not traditional employees anymore. So we can go into that. You have contractors, you have gig workers, you have crowd workers, you have many different ways that people participate. And I think that challenges us to think about ecosystems as much as any member of the C-suite. I think the other thing that we're seeing, and I think this is true across management generally, but please challenge me on it, Tom. Um, The other thing we're seeing is that the role of executives is much more than a management function. It's a creative function. And so I think the challenge that HR leaders have today is to be redesigning work, redesigning jobs, reimagining them. Again, we can go into that. And that clearly puts some pressure on how we're developing both MBAs and managers generally, but also HR leaders. And there are a whole bunch of disciplines, uh, including uh, design thinking and behavioral economics that are really becoming important to the way that we develop both HR leaders and I think all leaders in the C-suite at the same time. Well, we do want to touch on much of what you've talked about. We'll run quickly. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We are with author Jeff Schwartz talking about opportunity, resilience, and growth in the future of work. So we've had COVID over the last year, and you've talked about the future of work and what COVID taught us. What are, what are some of the real big lessons? Uh, you were talking about the trends prior to COVID, and all of a sudden we hit COVID. You know, what's happened to those trends as a result of COVID? Well, I I think a couple of things have happened. You know, it's interesting. um, 
there's a couple of words that have really risen to the top of the discussion in the last uh, 12 or 15 months. Um, fundamentally, my view of COVID is that it is much more than an accelerator. And we could have an interesting debate, Tom, with uh, your listeners on was 2020 a year of acceleration or was 2020 a year of disruption? Was it a year of actual shifting to a new gear? You know, did we go from second gear to third gear to fourth gear? It's not just that we went faster. In fact, we've been accelerating for a long time. We could have read the book and written the book, Work Accelerated, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but what we saw in 2020, I'll summarize it this way, is we saw 10x. Right. And what do I mean when I say we saw 10x? 10x is real exponential change. At the beginning of 2020, for instance, in the United States, 5% of the workforce was doing something that looked like remote work. By May of last year, that number was somewhere around 50 to 55%. Or put it another way, anybody who could work remotely was working remotely. And anybody who couldn't work remotely was operating in a I like to call it a physically distanced way, not a socially distanced way, but they were operating in a safe way given what was happening. But 5% to 50%, that's 10x, right? And I think that's what's really interesting about what we saw in the last year. And that allowed us to see the incredible, not only resilience, but the adaptability of the workforce. We learned something about adaptability and potential. So many people in the last year were not doing what they were hired to do. They were not doing what was in their job description. They were doing what had to be done and they were doing it in a new way. And so we learned some remarkable things about resilience and adaptability. And we also learned some very important lessons around well-being. And we can obviously go into that as well. Well, let's talk about that. What were the lessons about well-being? Well, I think that the main lesson about well-being was before COVID, well-being was something that was seen as almost a, a, a sidecar to the way that we ran business in HR, right? Um, we had well-being programs. We had well-being benefits um, that we offered. We've had a long history in most countries of some type of um, occupational safety and health requirements for the work that we were actually doing. But in 2020 and 2021, well-being became front and center. Every employer, every manager and leader had to think about how are their employees and workers doing in terms of their physical well-being, their actual physical health. Also, what was their mental health? How much stress were they under? They also needed to think about what their financial health was. And then we also needed to think about how we were integrating well-being into the work itself. Look, we're recording this and we're on a, a, a collaborative platform, a Zoom platform, one of the things we had to figure out in 2020 was how do we manage well-being when half the workforce is working remotely and half the workforce is working in person? And these were new ideas. We, were, we really were not used to the breadth of well-being, physical, mental, the actual work itself, and financial. And we were really not using, used to managing well-being every day. And I think we're checking in with people. We're thinking about some of these questions much more than ever before. And I hope that that's something we bring forward, Tom, as we move beyond the intensity of where we are in COVID right now. So I, I know you mentioned, uh, I believe in your book, about the vulnerability that we've experienced and, uh, and how our work and personal lives have intersected as well. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? That's a big one, I think. Uh, I was just on the phone with some of my people this morning talking about that intersection. Well, we, we used to have this notion that we had a personal life and a work life. And at least in the last year, that line has been blurred. Um, I'm always joking with my clients and colleagues, Tom, that I'm waiting for the dog in the background or a child to sort of climb onto somebody's lap or the cattail to walk across um, uh, the screen that we're on. And, you know, I'm recording this in my living room. Um, so we are, you know, there's that wonderful expression, are we, are we working from home or are we living at work? Um, but it's made us focus. It's given us the opportunity to recognize that we live integrated lives and that paying attention to that integration, recognizing that what we do as parents and as friends and as taking care of our pets 
is part of our lives and we've integrated it much more. Yeah, I am talking to a number of people uh, recently as we start to come out of COVID. Uh, most, if not all, talk about they don't want to go back to the way it was. Uh, I'm here in San Francisco and you can have a two hour commute, people getting on a bus, uh, a company bus to take them over to South San Francisco. I go on and on. And I see you're smiling. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no one wants to go back to that. Uh, and they've also found, uh, which I think is a very good thing, uh, family and the importance of family. They're spending more time with family and how that's enhanced their life. And uh, we're going to come back and talk some more about that in the next segment. We're going to come back after just a short break. And we're with Jeff Schwartz, who is the founder of Deloitte Consulting's uh, Future of Work. Remember, you can listen to our Saturday broadcast live anywhere in the world on iHeartRadio by clicking on San Francisco's KTRB 860 AM, The Answer. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. A lifetime ago, young naval aviator Tom McGuire took the oath of allegiance to support and defend the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now a San Francisco PD homicide inspector, McGuire hadn't thought about the oath in years, but that was all about to change. A famous local newspaper columnist had been murdered. For McGuire, there's an eerie chill of recognition about it, hearkening back to his days as a prisoner of war after being shot down in North Vietnam. A lifetime ago, another young naval pilot took that same oath. Also shot down in battle, he too spent time as a POW, same camp as McGuire. After 30 years, their lives were about to cross once again. But how and why after all these years? Multi-award winning mystery author Dennis Kohler's The Oath can be found online or for an autographed copy at oathbook.org. That's oathbook.org. Oathbook.org. Here at Mentors Radio, we've been working hard to help you succeed in every way possible. That's why we're proud to let you know about our newest find, BetterCreditDeal.com. BetterCreditDeal.com links you to a credit processing company, Cornerstone Payment Systems, that truly shares your ethical values and that can give you lower rates immediately. They don't just say it, they prove it to you. Their commitment to ethical behavior is rock solid. For example, unlike most other credit processing companies, something you may not have known before, Cornerstone refuses to process any porn-related business. They're not newbies either. The company we recommend has more than 50 years' experience and provides 24-7 in-house support. See what they can do for you today. Go to BetterCreditDeal.com. That's BetterCreditDeal.com. BetterCreditDeal.com. Ugh, Bob, I'm so frustrated. Sorry to hear that, Sarah. What's going on? I feel like I'm spinning. I I make goals to make money, work less, spend more quality time with family. But the truth is, I never actually achieve these goals. Year after year, I try to do things differently, but ultimately nothing changes. What's the point? Yeah, I did the same thing until I saw a friend completely change her life in less than a year. I was shocked. She sounded just like you a year ago, but not anymore. Wow, what'd she do? She decided to work with a Brian Tracy certified coach named Christoph Nauer. Certified by Brian Tracy? He must be good. Even better. He guarantees results. He listens. It's very customized to you. That gives me hope. As a listener of The Mentors Radio, you get a free one-on-one Take My Time Back session. Don't wait. Go to balance6.biz. That's balance, the number six, dot B-I-Z to book your free assessment. Balance6.biz. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Roy, and I'm with Deloitte's Jeff Schwartz, and we're talking about adapting to the emerging 21st century post-COVID workplace. So we were talking about uh, the changes and not wanting to go back. And boy, I tell you, when you stop and think about the changes over the last year and, it's, and the creativity that I've seen, uh, it's phenomenal. And one of the other things you talk about is the uh, collaborative use of collaborative technologies. You and I are right now using Zoom, which two years ago uh, and doing a radio show we would not be using, mm-hmm. uh, but everybody's adapted to it and figured out how to make it work. Uh, but the collaborative technologies, and that gets to 
uh, what led me uh, initially to want you to come on to the show, because in the book, you talk about robots, AI, and then I'll add another one, chatbots, because I was reading about chatbots here recently. Mm -hmm. And before COVID, there was a lot of, not just before COVID, but for a number of years, this whole thing about robots are going to eliminate jobs. Technology is going to eliminate jobs. We need a minimum salary for everybody in this country because so many people won't have income. Uh, we saw that in the last pre presidential election that being proposed. Let's talk a little bit about that man-machine interface and what your point of view is on that. I'll turn it over to you and let you run with it. No, this is one of the central questions, obviously, in the whole future of work discussion and narrative, Tom. Um, there's um, a couple of ways to, to frame this. So let me let me give two ideas, introduce two ideas. One is there's um, there are two dominant narratives in the future of work, I think. Uh, you've mentioned one, which is the robot apocalypse, and it's been well covered in the media. Uh, it's been well covered um, uh, in the, in the popular press. Um, and there are real concerns about that. And, and the, uh, the countervailing narrative, if you will, is the idea that we're entering a phase of humanity unleashed, where we can do amazing things that humans can do when we work with technology. And it really comes down to a very interesting uh, challenge. And there's, there's a quote from Albert Einstein that has become one of my favorites, which is that you can't use an old map to explore a new world. And I think when we're looking at how people and technology work together, this is a, a really uh, relevant way of thinking about it. Um, if we think about people and technology in a zero sum game, in a competition, in an automation substitution mindset, uh, we end up uh, in that robot apocalypse thinking. But I think what we're also recognizing is the opportunity, and it is an opportunity, it is a choice to look at how people and technology can work together. What can we do so that robots and AI do the things that they do really well, and that human workers get to do the things that we do really well. And it's that combination that creates what we call super jobs and super teams, new ways of working that are really based on these combinations. And, and we can go into that a little bit more if you'd like. Well, give us a couple of examples. Well, there, there I'll give some, I'll give a few examples and we try to give them quickly because I want to give a sense of this. Um, uh, the most, the one that we're all most familiar with is the ATM machine, the automated teller machine, right? Um, this is one of the great stories in the future of work. We introduced the ATM machine in the late 1970s. And this is a machine, we all know what it is. You put your card in the wall and it takes money and it gives you money. That's all it does. That's what it was created to do. And when we created this machine in the late 1970s, you could imagine a lot of people saying, you know what, the job of a retail banker in the bank branch is going to go away. Because why do we need people in the bank branch anymore? Because when I was growing up, when you went to the bank branch, all you did was deposit money and take out cash. Right? But what happened over the subsequent 40 years? The number of bank branches in the US and around the world more than doubled. And even though we only needed 40%, we needed 40% fewer people to work in every bank branch, right? We opened many more branches and more people were hired to work in retail banking. But what happened was that the job of every retail banker changed because some of their work, and this is the key point, some of their work was done by the machines, but other work, helping identify new financial products, thinking through mortgages, applying for credit cards, dealing with fraud issues were issues that made our work as retail bankers much more interesting. And, and I think that's the challenge that we're, we're looking at. Let me, if I can give one other example, just to give another side of this. Um, this is an example from healthcare. Um, uh, there's a wonderful book called Deep Medicine written by um, Eric Topol. Uh, who's a cardiologist in San Diego out on, on the West Coast with you. And Eric talks about the future of radiologists, right? Let's just, to me, this is analogous to the story of ATM machines and retail bankers. And we know that AI can read digital images and scans as well as an above average radiologist. So you could imagine people, and they are saying this, Tom, well, we're not gonna need radiologists anymore. But 
what Eric Topol says is the opposite. What radiologists need to do is think like Renaissance radiologists. How do we stand on the shoulders of the technology? How do we use the gift of time that we get when some of the work that we do is done by technology to do the unique things that a radiologist, a Renaissance radiologist can do to explain illness, to explain treatments, to spend more time with patients. Imagine that, more time talking to your doctor, talking to your, to your nurse. And I think the, the real opportunity for us, but it's not predetermined, is what it, to ask the question, what is the Renaissance version of the work that we're doing? So that when we combine technology, whether it's robots or AI with what we're doing, that we can do the more human things that create new jobs and add more value. So that was a bit of a mouthful, but it's a, yeah, but it really is a central question in front of us. Well, I, I had the experience when I was in college. I worked as a bricklayer's laborer, and towards the end of my uh, time in college, I became a, a, a apprentice. And there were a lot of uh, innovations that we could have used that would have actually increased the productivity of each bricklayer. Uh, unfortunately, the unions came in and shut them all down so they could drive up the price of uh, the labor cost or, or the wages, if you will. Now, wages were rising anyways. They just really wanted to create a monopoly, I guess. And what happened is that I grew up in Chicago. Brick used to be around the house, both stories. It went to just on the first floor. Then it went to the front of the house. And now there is no brick being used unless you've got a, a gazillion dollars to pay for it. So they really wiped out, now the bricklayers are still around, but they limited the expanse. That could have been a, a dominant uh, uh, thing in building of homes, and they've really eliminated it. So that, that goes the other way where you try to restrict technology and what it did. It really hurt the trade. Um, so the as we go forward then, the question is, what are those, when I think about each person out there in our audience, uh, technology is used to complement our skills is what I'm getting out of this. And secondly, there are some human capabilities that machines lack. And it seems to me that's where our focus should be in terms of our own development, because that's where it's got to be going. Could you just talk through some of those human capabilities that machines lack and where people should be putting their time and energy? Well, I think the whole question of what are the enduring human capabilities is really the center of the discussion. And they range everything from problem solving to framing questions to um, managing people, managing teams, including managing technology um, and all of the emotional and communication skills, all the judgment skills are quite critical. And hopefully we can spend a little bit more time on, on this question because I think this question of what are the human capabilities is really central to the whole discussion. Great. So we're going to be back after a short break with our guest mentor, Deloitte Consulting's future of work expert, Jeff Schwartz. We're discussing how to navigate the emerging post-COVID workplace. This is Tom Loy, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. Hey, professional businesswomen. I know how busy your life is. To look your best, nails matter. The good news is I can save you a lot of nasty, chemical-smelling nail salon time. Just imagine a perfect manicure in just minutes at home, even while watching TV. No dry time, no smudges, no streaks, and your new manicure will last up to 10 days, often longer. I'm talking about 100% real nail polish. Yes, real nail polish, including top and base coat all in one that can gently be stretched for a perfect custom fit. Gorgeous, vibrant colors, soft pastels, gentle glitter or can't-miss designs and nail art. You have options. For about $12 a set, you can even get some free. Choose your colors or designs. Receive them in about three days. Done. Everything you need is included. Polish easily removes and does not damage nails. Check it out. Nails4me.com. Nails, the number 4, M-E.com. That's Nails4me.com. Hi, I'm the executive producer of the Mentors Radio Show. Usually I'm behind the scenes, but I want to tell you about something special. If you're an entrepreneur like me, you need steady energy and focus. Here's my secret. I rely on science-backed, high-quality, bulletproof collagen protein and other bulletproof products. My sister told me about it. At feelgreat.vip, you can learn the health journey of bulletproof founder Dave Asprey. Find out what sets these products apart from the rest. Nothing can replace the advice of your medical doctor, but good nutrition can absolutely enhance your mood, energy, and focus like it did for me. The demands of business, not to mention important time with family and friends, make steady energy so important. 
With more than 1 million fans, 1 million fans, I'm not alone in recommending Bulletproof. Go to feelgreat.vip. That's VIP, like very special person. Feelgreat.vip to learn more. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and I'm with Deloitte's Jeff Schwartz, and we're talking about adapting to the emerging 21st century post-COVID workplace. So we were talking in the last segment uh, about technology and the merging of technology and then where people should be focused going forward to navigate the changes that are coming, those things that machines can't do. And you mentioned problem solving. Uh, I think you've also listed communications, I I can tell you is really important and just being able to communicate and tell a story. And there are others. So why don't you continue on that about where people today, if you had a 16 year old, what would you tell him he should study? Maybe you do have a 16 year old. Or if you're a 30 year old and you're in transition, because your company got acquired, where should I put my energies going forward? Or 50 year old? Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad, I like the way you asked the question because that's the way I like to think about it, which is whether you're uh, a 16 year old or a 30 year old or a 50 year old or a 60 year old, we're all engaged in this process that sometimes we call it lifelong learning. I, I prefer a slightly different uh, expression, if you will, Tom, which is um, because we get to live hopefully longer lives, we are living in an era where there is an amazing longevity dividend. Um, young people born uh, in this century, the end of the last century, many of them can expect to live to be 100 years old. Um, but what's interesting, not but, what's interesting about a 100 year career, a uh, 100 year life, is that you may end up working for 50 or 60 years. By the way, when I say that, a lot of people groan when I say that we're gonna have 50 and 60 year careers. But the average time in a, a job is only three or four years. And the half-life of a technical skill, like a computer language or working with a particular tool set, um, may be three, four, five years or less. So as one of my colleagues says, do the math. You work for 50 or 60 years. You spend three years in a job. You have to constantly relearn skills. What, are, what does a career actually look like in the 21st century? Well, it is not a once-and-done model. We should not, I would not say to a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, pick a field gain proficiency in that field and expect that you can have a job for 20 or 30 years and go through a linear career path. Learning becomes our job, right? Reinvention becomes our job. And, and again, you, you've heard me speak a little bit in the last first part of our interview. It's a wonderful quote from Tom Friedman, the columnist, who, uh, who says something like, workers today need to think about their careers the way an Olympic athlete thinks about their career. But imagine being an Olympic athlete and not knowing what sport you're going to be competing in. And that's the world that we live in today. So if we were training an athlete, we would be looking at strength, endurance, flexibility, agility, eye-hand coordination. Um, You know, there are some fundamental capabilities to being a great athlete. That's part of what we need to focus on more. Skills are important, but capabilities are incredibly important problem solving, teaming, emotional intelligence, communication, um, how to work with people, how to work with technology, and how to reinvent ourselves becomes really central to this. Because if you're that 15-year-old, you're going to have 12 or 14 jobs. And we need to help people think about that. If you're the 30-year-old, you've got 10 jobs to go. If you're the 50-year-old, you may have three or four jobs to go. So we've all got to be in this reinvention mindset. And that's a shift from the way that we've been thinking about it over much of the last few decades. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We're with Jeff Schwartz from Deloitte talking about the future of work. <clears throat> well, one, as you, I think I've mentioned to you, I run a uh, or co-chair a ministry for people that are in transition. We've helped about 6,000 people out here in California since the dot-com crash. And one of the things that we talk a great deal about is this problem solving. And people don't, they think problem solving is solving a math problem. But as I've uh, tried to explain to people, problem solving could be a marketing problem. It could be an engineering problem. It could be a molecular biology challenge, if you will. It could be an accounting problem. 
every day we're faced with problem solving. And I, I think developing that skill, that's one of my hot buttons is uh, the problem solving, because I don't care what changes over time, problem solving is still going to command a premium if you're a good problem solver. And that, I, I think that probably gets into critical thinking as well, doesn't it? It does. And I, I was probably using critical thinking and problem solving um, uh, in the same way. But it, it raises a really central point, Tom, which is we talked a few minutes ago about the robot apocalypse. Robots are not very good at solving problems. Robots are particularly good, as is AI, at solving a problem that has a known answer. Solving a problem where sifting through a large amount of data helps you calculate what that answer is. It's the difference between what we would technically call sort of narrow intelligence, which is what machines are really good at, um, and general intelligence and curiosity and critical thinking, which is what humans are really good at, right? Um, there's a wonderful um, quote from Pablo Picasso who says, um, I'm not really impressed with machines. They only know the answers. What I really am looking for are people that can ask really good questions. And as you've pointed out, in the COVID era, what was really important was our ability to pivot. What was really important was our ability to do things in new contexts. It was the uncertainty and the shifts that really challenged us. So technology like collaboration, like um, automation helped us, but it was the adaptability and the flexibility and the critical thinking that really is what saved us, I think, in the last year. And is where a lot of the value and interesting work is going to come for us in the next few years. But we need to build these jobs and we need to create these relationships between tech and people. And what is the value of questions? That's another one of my hot buttons. From your point of view, what is the value of learning how to ask questions? Well, if I were to say it succinctly, the value in asking questions is that the value that we create in our lives and in our, in our economy is by doing things that haven't done, been done before. Machines are good at doing things that we already know what the question is. But the source of real value in our lives and in our economies is identifying new problems. It's unseen problems. It's anticipating and identifying an opportunity where one did not exist before. That's where we all get our passion from. That's where we get a lot of our satisfaction from. And it's also where most economic value, if you go back to Robert Solow, who won a Nobel Prize for this, it's innovation that drives value much more than productivity in an interesting way. And we're no longer a top-down, tell people what to do. It's really asking questions. I mean, crowdsourcing and all of these uh, new tools are part of the asking a question of a large group of people. Well, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a hyper-connected world. And we're in a world where teams really are the thing. This is, we are not living in an age of hierarchy and top-down right. anymore. We're living in an age where the networks and the teams really are where the value is being driven. Well, thanks. So we're going to come back after a short break, our last break. We're with Future of Work expert Jeff Schwartz. You'll find all of our past shows, show notes, and links to the mentors at thementorsradio.com. Subscribe to future shows while you're there. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. Ugh, Bob, I'm so frustrated. Sorry to hear that, Sarah. What's going on? I feel like I'm spinning. I, I make goals to make money, work less, spend more quality time with family. But the truth is, I never actually achieve these goals. Year after year, I try to do things differently, but ultimately nothing changes. What's the point? Yeah, I did the same thing until I saw a friend completely change her life in less than a year. I was shocked. She sounded just like you a year ago, but not anymore. Wow, what'd she do? She she decided to work with a Brian Tracy certified coach named Christoph Nauer. Certified by Brian Tracy? He must be good. Even better. He guarantees results. He listens. It's very customized to you. Wow, that gives me hope. As a listener of The Mentors Radio, you get a free one-on-one -on -one Take My Time Back session. Don't wait. Go to balance6.biz. That's balance, the number six, dot B-I-Z to book your free assessment. Balance6.biz. A lifetime ago, young naval aviator Tom McGuire took the oath of allegiance to support and defend the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now a San Francisco PD homicide inspector, McGuire hadn't thought about the oath in years, but that was all about to change. A famous local newspaper columnist had been murdered. 
from McGuire, there's an eerie chill of recognition about it, hearkening back to his days as a prisoner of war after being shot down in North Vietnam. A lifetime ago, another young naval pilot took that same oath. Also shot down in battle, he too spent time as a POW, same camp as McGuire. After 30 years, their lives were about to cross once again. But how and why after all these years? Multi-award winning mystery author Dennis Kohler's The Oath can be found online or for an autographed copy at oathbook.org. That's oathbook.org, oathbook.org. Here at Mentors Radio, we've been working hard to help you succeed in every way possible. That's why we're proud to let you know about our newest find, bettercreditdeal.com. Bettercreditdeal.com links you to a credit processing company, Cornerstone Payment Systems, that truly shares your ethical values and that can give you lower rates immediately. They don't just say it, they prove it to you. Their commitment to ethical behavior is rock solid. For example, unlike most other credit processing companies, something you may not have known before, Cornerstone refuses to process any porn-related business. They're not newbies either. The company we recommend has more than 50 years experience and provides 24-7 in-house support. See what they can do for you today. Go to BetterCreditDeal.com. That's BetterCreditDeal.com. BetterCreditDeal.com. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and I'm with Deloitte's Jeff Schwartz, and we're talking about adapting to the emerging 21st century post-COVID workplace. So one of the things that we've seen with COVID uh, is it's changed. uh, Well, we saw some trends before COVID, such as the gig economy. We'll come back to that. But not only that, and for me, as somebody that runs a company, uh, the fact that there's no more, we're eliminating footprints. I am able to hire people and I have people that work for me in Boston, London, Florida, San Diego, and the Bay Area, which in the past I would never be able to pull that off. So I want you to spend the last segment talking about the changing nature in terms of the footprint, uh, the types of jobs and things and where all that's going. Well, we've, we've seen two changes that have really dramatically come into focus in, in the last year. But as you mentioned, the changes to both workforces, who is the workforce? Also, what is the workforce? Because machines are part of the workforce as well. And, and the whole role of workplace. Work, workplace used to be a very simple concept, right, Tom? It was where we went to do our work. It was an office. It was a lab. It was a campus. It was a factory. Um, but now it's actually how we, we do our work. And these two trends have really been evolving for quite some time. The workforce itself, workforce composition has been dramatically changing actually since the end of World War II. And and I'll I'll very quickly mention that there's a a wonderful book. One of the people I interviewed for the book was Lewis Hyman, the labor historian at Cornell, who wrote a book on the history of the temp workforce, who says it predates gigs by many, many decades. And if you look at the workforce today in most organizations, uh, a growing percentage, it can be 30, 40, 50%, in some organizations, 90% are not traditional employees. So we are managing people working for us who don't have what we think of as a traditional employment contract. They are in an ecosystem. We are orchestrating an ecosystem. And we're orchestrating that ecosystem, not in an office or in a factory, but in some sort of a global network and some sort of a global way of operating. And and these are big shifts, but but I wanna introduce one core idea here. Um, When we introduced, when we interviewed, sorry, when I interviewed Lewis Hyman and he talked about uh, full-time workers, part-time workers, contractors, freelancers, gig workers, ghost workers, crowd workers, we can talk about any of them that you would like. Um, We asked him what he thought the future of the workforce was going to look like in 2030. And uh, we were doing a Zoom interview and he laughed, he smiled. And he said, that's a tough question because the future is not predetermined. Or put another way, he wasn't a techno determinist or a, a workforce determinist. His comment, and this is one of the 
key challenges for us as leaders and workers is we have choices. How do we want to structure work? Whether we are a full-time employee or a freelance worker or a gig worker, so that that work is not precarious, that that work is meaningful, that that work is safe, that that work has benefits, and that we can provide a safe environment for people who are working either at home or people who are working on premise with us somewhere. So we have some really hard and interesting choices to make about both workforce composition and about workplace strategy as we're coming out of this COVID period into the, hopefully the thrive period that will follow it. So the burden is really on each of us to determine which of those styles that we want to fit into as well, right? I, I mean, there's I going to be all these choices. Then the question is, I guess we have to make a choice and we have to reflect on what choices really are benefit to us. I think that's right. And I think the, interestingly, this is a, maybe a good place to end our discussion today. The way I summarize the book is I talk about what are the challenges and mindsets that we need as individuals? How do, what do we need to do? What do business and organization leaders need to do? But also what do we need to do as citizens and communities to make these choices and go in this direction in the post COVID world that we've been exploring today in our discussion. Well, thank you very much. It's been really uh, interesting to hear your thoughts and think about the future. Uh, that's going to be it for this show. Until next week, we've been talking to Jeff Schwartz, the founding partner of Deloitte Consulting's U.S. Future of Work Practice and author of Work Disruptive. We have been talking about significant changes in business employment models and what you need to do now to navigate the emerging 21st century post-COVID workplace. When you are at the website, we will have a link for Jeff's book, so you can get that directly. And the website is thementorsradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe to future shows. Remember, you can listen to this and past shows on any device at any time by going to your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Lloyd signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.